You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. You, Psalm 42 is where we're at. So every summer we do um, uh, what we call Summer in the Psalms, and we spend time in 10 different psalms throughout the summer, and uh, I always look forward to it. It is a um, it is probably one of my favorite series uh, throughout the year. And so Psalm 42, I want to read and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in, okay? Because there's a bit of content here. So here we go. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night... His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the Word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would come and and speak to us this morning. Father, I, uh, I know, I think we all know that the last thing we need to hear is words of a mere man in a pulpit, what we need to hear is words of God, our Father in Heaven. So God, I ask that You would come and speak to us, that You would remove any barriers, stop us from hearing from You. But I pray that You would come and awaken dead hearts this morning. I pray that You would come and heal wounded hearts. Call back to You rebellious and wandering hearts. God, I ask that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth this morning and use them, cause them to bring attention and honor and glory to you and you alone, that you would do good, help your sheep. Trust you to do this and then some. Jesus, everybody said, amen, amen. Hey, the 42nd Psalm is a, a song of a heart that is full of conflict. You can envision that. 
The psalm of a heart that is full of conflict. As you study this psalm, you might notice uh, how our psalmist, the author here, he kind of wavers back and forth between these really high confessions of theological truth about God. And then on the other hand, he wavers over towards these sobering cries of depression and fear and loneliness. The reality is he just bounces back and forth because his heart is conflicted inside of him. You might know what seasons like that are like. Seasons where your heart is conflicted in the midst of the turmoil or caught between um, the pain of suffering on the one hand and an acknowledgement of God's character and promises on the other. Where you just feel like your heart isn't rooted. It keeps shifting back and forth. Those seasons, I know for me, um, can cause me to sometimes question my relationship with God. Maybe it could cause you to feel like uh, you have some kind of uncurable spiritual disease or like a, a spiritual depression that has sunk your heart down into the depths of absolute despair. You ever experienced a season like that? Show of hands. Five of us, six, no, four of us. These, these seasons like this are uh, normal for the human experience, and you're not alone. So if you, if you uh, get one thing today, maybe that would be one thing that would encourage you is to know that you're not the only one that walks through seasons like this. What do those seasons oftentimes look like? In the life of our church family and just in the 40-some-odd years that I've been walking the earth, sudden loss of a child, cause a season. Shattered marriage, cause a season. Loss of a job, friend who betrays you and not only betrays you but continues to seek your destruction like we looked at last week in Psalm 41. The health issue that becomes life-threatening for either you or a family member. These are things that can cause our hearts to take that deep dive into that conflicted place of wondering, is God who He says He is? And this is too much to bear. Conflicted heart. Could be memories of the abuse or the trauma that you experienced years ago at the hands of someone that should have taken care of you. Maybe it's the realization that you might never find someone to spend the rest of your life with. Painful. Deep pattern of sin that seems to have a chokehold over your life. Something that you only do in the darkness that you try to hide from others. These are just snippets, I think, of some of those seasons where our hearts may become so full of conflict that you or I feel completely overwhelmed and without hope. You think of that word, hope. I have a daughter named Hope, and she's sitting in the front row. <laughs> we oftentimes say, and our kids joke all the time, they're like, we always become the butt of your illustrations on stage. And you know, it's just part of being a pastor's kid. That's what you get. You didn't ask for it, but too bad. We often joke that, because of a daughter named Hope, we, <laughs> we cry out to God for hope oftentimes. 
But hope is a lot more than a daughter named Hope, okay, right? Hope, I, I think, if you think about the topic, it's absolutely vital to our existence, right? I seriously believe that without a shred or a sliver of hope, you die. I really believe that. Um, like, hope is the thing that gets us through the chaos of difficulty, isn't it? Um, I don't know why, but a, a, maybe it's because we're getting closer to Cornhusker season, but a Husker illustration comes to mind. You know, without hope that the Huskers will ever make it back, will we die? No, probably not. <laughs> we do have a lot of hope today because we have a new coach, right? And we're looking forward to the future, what might possibly happen. Jesus, please let it be so. <laughs> the reality, though, is hope. Hope really is the essence of the promise of better days, isn't it? That's what hope is. It's the essence of the promise of better days. Hope is the dream of a better future. Uh, hope, I think, is the refreshing drink of water to a soul that has been dehydrated by the sudden onset of great difficulty. In the midst of the chaos of his conflicted heart, what the psalmist does here all throughout Psalm 42 is he preaches hope. And he preaches hope to his dried out soul. To follow the rhythms of the psalmist's conflicted heart with me, the first thing that we see in the text is this deep longing for God. In verses 1-2. through two. He begins by expressing his deep desire to drink deeply. From the overflowing presence of God, look what he says in the first couple of verses. He says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Let those words sink in for a minute. Can't you hear the longing? Psalmist words, you feel how thirsty the psalmist is. I remember when I first met my wife, and we began talking on the telephone in the evenings. I don't think they had cell phones. That date us a little bit. They probably did. They were just these really big block phones, or they were these big bags that you had to carry. The phones we talked on had these really long, spirally cords that you, you could drag around the house and hopefully you'd get some privacy. Text message. <laughs> you didn't carry the phone on you all the time. You, some of you maybe experienced this where you, you know she or he is going to call you and you're, you're waiting by the phone. You're longing to talk to that. I remember that feeling. And then, of course, we'd stay on the phone all night long. We'd do some of the stupid things that young kids do today and fall asleep on the phone. <laughs> there was that deep sense of desire, that longing that the psalmist has here is that real deep sense of desire to be with his God, to, to drink from his presence, so to speak. And you think about this uh, concept of being thirsty, right? This is nothing that's probably necessarily new to us, although it's not the same for us here in America as it is for you know, my friend Brian, who's you know, planting a church in Africa and 
walks his 20 kids two miles uh, one way to get water every day. Our ability to get water when we're thirsty, pretty easy. But maybe we don't know what it's like to be really, really thirsty, but we know what it's like to be thirsty, don't we? Long, hot day in the sun without water, out mowing the yard, working on things. What happens is your body begins to feel weak, doesn't it? Your tongue starts to stick to the roof of your mouth. Your, your brain begins to tell you um, that, that you desperately need a drink of water soon. And spiritually speaking, this is where the psalmist is at. He's spiritually dehydrated. Anybody ever had that season where you're spiritually dehydrated? You haven't been in your word enough. You haven't been with God's people enough. You haven't been in prayer enough, whatever it may be. Spiritually dehydrated. And maybe been filling yourself full of uh, what you think is refreshing that actually dehydrates you more. Um, you know, a, a Coors Light sounds really refreshing at the end of a hot day, but the reality is this. It only dehydrates you more, right? For, for some people, a, a soda sounds really refreshing after a long hot day. But the reality we know is all the sugars that are in just dehydrates you. Those types of drinks don't deliver on the promise that they make quite like a real refreshing drink water. And oftentimes that's the problem too. It's not only that we're not in our scriptures, not only that we're not with God's people, not only that we're not praying, it's that we are filling our souls with things that don't deliver on the promises they make. And we wind up spiritually dehydrated. And this is exactly where the psalmist is. He needs to drink deeply from the never-ending well of the presence of the living God. He's literally thirsty for God, longing for God. But the question is, why? Why is he there? Why is the psalmist so spiritually dehydrated? You might notice in verses 3 and 4 that it seems as though he is depressed. He's, like he's very sad. He's sunk into a very low depression. He's, and he's depressed because of memories of long ago, right? Second thing we see in the text. You look at verses 3 and 4, it has already become apparent that our psalmist is spiritually dehydrated. He's, he's longing for God. He's thirsty for God. And it's because he is depressed by memories of long ago and, his, and in his depression, all that his heart has been feeding on day and night is simply that, I'm sad, I'm depressed. It's, it's all he's been eating, so to speak. The only nutrition he's gotten. He's absolutely consumed with that depression. He says, hey, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Even though the psalmist does have happy memories of being in God's presence. They're memories of long ago. And they're causing him depression today. Most commentators would agree that this psalmist, you know, the superscription on it, you know, in my Bible says that it is uh, by the sons of Korah. They're the first Eight psalms here that we're going to get through uh, this year are written by the sons of Korah. And 
Psalm 43 follows that, right? It doesn't have the same superscription, but it's probably the ninth one by them because the language is the same. All that doesn't really matter to you. The sons of Korah were, were sons of a man who was wiped out by God because of his idolatry and sin. It's just a, there's something there about how evil parents don't always produce evil children. Either do good parents always produce good children. Um, in this, you see the sons of Korah, worship leaders, the temple of God in their time. Seems as though they are in exile at this point. That's what most commentators agree on. They're in exile. That um, They're under the um, oppression of a foreign nation who has them basically in captivity. And they are unable to worship God the way that they used to. Uh, the author here is unable to gather with God's people the way that he is used to doing. It feels like forever since he sung praise songs with other believers. He remembers leading God's people in praise and worship songs. Some of us have experienced that. We, we remember years gone by where we had experiences with God and His people, and it's been so long that it's almost a distant memory. And, and there's, there's a longing, there, there's, there's something missing in the midst of that. Those memories are beginning to fade. Psalmist says, though he's having a hard time remembering the last time that he even heard God's word being preached. And that's not all. Because to top it all off, his enemies, most likely those responsible for his exile, his enemies are continually taunting him. The age-old question. The end of verse 3. Age-old question. Every human in all of existence has asked. Where is God in the midst of my suffering? When was the last time you were tempted, maybe not even just tempted, but did question God's presence in the midst of your suffering? With that question in mind, when hope seems like a forgotten dream of long ago, our psalmist preaches a message of hope to his conflicted heart. Verses 5 and 6, he interrogates questions like a cross-examiner. He questions his conflicted heart, and then in the midst of that, he just boldly goes straight for the punchline, and he, he preaches exactly what his heart needs to hear. Now, oftentimes when we face hardship, we turn to a lot of different places to try to placate that feeling of pain, difficulty, right? What are some of the places you turn to? Here, the psalmist just preaches hope to his heart. Starts out with this question. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The thing about the why question is the why question can be kind of scary. Because the why question gets at what's underneath all the surface stuff that's going on. It's an, it's an interrogative kind of a question. And oftentimes it can cause you to kind of flinch. It's like when I was a kid and my mom would tell me I needed to go outside and do the chores and feed the horses and get the buckets of water down to them. And 
spill the bucket of water, and she would say, why did you spill the bucket of water? And I would shrink back in shame and fear, like, don't beat me, please, you know. My mom carried this riding crop around with her. Brutal. Love my mom. Why question can be about that scary. Unless you learn to use the why question for a healing reason. And we all should learn to do that. Ask the why question. What's really underneath there? Why, why is that happening? So we can get at the real infection underneath. So we don't just placate the surface and leave the weeds growing underneath that. Ask the why question. He does that. Why are you downcast soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, proclaims, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. See, in the midst of his deep thirst for God, uh, in, in, in the face of the depression that has been brought on from memories of long ago, in, in answer to that ages-old question, hey, where is your God, your so-called God, in the midst of your suffering? Where is He? The psalmist basically puts all the chips of his hope right in the center on his future salvation. He hangs everything on the coat hook of God's rescuing character. I don't know about you. Um, I find it extremely hard to get my eyes off the difficulties of this life. I find it really easy to get consumed by the hardship and the suffering of this life, whether it's in my life or other people's life or, or, or the world around us. I find it very hard to get my eyes off that, to turn the news feed off. I find it hard. I find it hard to forget what lies behind. I find it hard to strain forward to what lies ahead. I find it hard to press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians. I find it much easier to focus on the momentary afflictions of this present darkness that we live in. Anybody else with me on that? This is why I think it's so vital to follow the psalmist's lead by questioning, interrogating my soul, and then preaching the hope of salvation to it. Preaching that message that though I am but a sinner and an enemy of God who has continuously made war with a holy, sovereign God by the way that I live my sinful life, that in His grace and in His mercy and because of His steadfast love, He has reached down in the work of His crucified, risen, and returning Son. And by the power of His Spirit, grabbed a hold of my heart and gave me a brand new one, took out the dead one, tossed it away, gave me a brand new breathing one, that I might live, love, and serve Him. <coughs> That's what God does. But just as soon as my heart begins to find its footing in that, um, just as soon as I begin to look upwards to the hope of eternal salvation through the shed blood, the broken body and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven in Christ Jesus, just as soon as I begin to kind of 
get there and get rooted there in a, in a, in, in for a moment. It's as though all of the powers of Satan, sin, and death attempt to then overwhelm my soul. And they do that with an, with an all-out full frontal assault, right? And that's what we see taking place in the text. It's this conflicted heart back and forth. It's like Satan, sin, and death see our psalmist and see you and I, and they go, ooh, you're starting to... You're starting to preach the gospel to your heart. I need to get another jab in there. I need to try to lay you out for good. That's what you see taking place in verses 6 and 7. Um, in those verses, our psalmist is overwhelmed and desperate. Overwhelmed and desperate. He's clinging to every ounce of hope that his heart can muster up. And, and in those moments of clinging to it, he becomes overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. You know what it feels like to be overwhelmed, right? He's overwhelmed with a debilitating sense that he's desperately drowning in an ocean of grief and he's only got a tiny sliver of hope. Tiniest little sliver of hope that he can barely even see that he might get out alive and he might get back into the presence of God. You look at verse 6. It says, oh my God. Your translation may say it a little bit differently. It may... At the end of verse 6, at the end of verse 6, what you might see is uh, the phrase that says, and my God, as though it's connected to the sentence before it, and that's highly possible in the language. There are plenty of translations that translate those, that final phrase into, oh my God, as, it, as though it is the beginning of a new sentence, okay? Um, you can interpret it both ways, and it still means the same thing, basically. But just so you know, I'm not trying to play fast and loose with the text. I think he begins by saying, oh my God, it's that desperate kind of a, oh my God, when you see something devastating and overwhelms you. Years ago on our, in our neighborhood, uh, there was a lady that lived down the street. It's been a few years ago now, and I remember I had just come home. Christy had just left one of our kids to go have lunch. And uh, I'd walked, I was making lunch or an early dinner for the rest of the kids that were in the house. And I heard what sounded like fireworks. And one of my neighbors came over and said, Joe, you need to come outside now. A lady's getting shot on her front porch. And, I, and my response was, oh my God. And so I grabbed my gun and I go outside and run down. And this, this lady is, has been shot seven times on the front porch. Blood everywhere uh, across the house. Neighborhood is gathered around and everybody is in shock and can't, won't get any closer. And so I start to run towards the lady, and of course the cops screech around the corner, and I, I backed off because I have a gun. You know, I'm like, don't shoot me. Not me. But the, my response from inside the house of the, oh my God, to then when I got there and saw the scene, it was, oh my God. See the emotional difference, right? I think that's where the psalmist is at. I think he's, he's, he's preached hope to his heart, but he's, he's overwhelmed. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. That's, that's the tiny sliver of hope right there. I said the landmarks in this verse, Jordan, Hermon, Mount Mizar, these landmarks are places where God's people, most likely David, and David hid from Saul as he was being hunted, And these landmarks are places where God's people found refuge in God's presence. Even though they were completely surrounded by their enemies. 
It reminds me of the psalm that says, you, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The great thing about that passage there is that you know who else's presence is there? The person that's behind the you, who, the you who prepares the table. You is the presence of God, the living God. Our psalmist here is desperate for refuge in God's presence, and he's hanging on to the slightest, tiniest sliver of hope. God is there with him. He moves on after recalling those physical landmarks of refuge in God's presence, despite being utterly surrounded by his enemies. Anybody ever know what that's like, you know? To be in a place where you're certain that everyone or everything around you is out for your harm, for your destruction. It feels like you can't trust anyone. And you don't know what's coming next. Like, like the bombs have been dropping in the minefield around you and all you can see is mushroom clouds in the sky and you can't see your way through the cloud. It feels like it's all out war and you're the one who didn't get some guns. I think that's the feeling he feels, and yet he's also holding on to this truth that he knows that God is with him. He is his refuge. And yet at the same time, he describes how desperately overwhelmed he feels in verse 7. Look at what he says. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist literally feels like he is drowning in an ocean of grief as the deep undercurrent of his suffering threatens to vaporize his life. And we talked about some of these uh, images in our elder meeting this last week, and um, we talked about when you think of this high waterfall and how it hits the water underneath of it, like it's really deep at that point because all that water has been falling into that spot for eons. And the undercurrent that is under there, you would not have the power to get back up above the water if you were under that falling waterfall, right? Your waves have gone over me. You ever seen the ocean? Ever stood in the ocean and felt those massive waves hit you? Harlan Reservoir is one of my favorite places to be. And I remember coming across that lake one day with a uh, jet ski. <laughs> had our tube, this tube behind the jet ski. And we knew the storm was coming, so Christy got the boat back over. And the boat and the jet ski don't belong to us, so we're like, please, Lord, let us get these things up there so we don't crash them. And I had uh, one kid on the back of the jet ski with me, and the other kid was on the tube just to hold the tube steady. And this storm was coming, and we're, we're coming across the, the lake, and about halfway across, the storm hits, and the waves are huge. I mean, just in a little lake. I mean, it's a big lake, but it's a little lake compared to the ocean. Um, I remember the kid on the back of the jet ski is pulling the other kid on the on the tube in. So it was Lewis, I think, and we get Lewis on the back, and so he's sitting backwards holding that tube by the rope. So we take off really slowly, and I'm not kidding you. It felt like we were climbing up waves back down. It was scary. But even that experience is nowhere close to what psalmist is feeling. Literally feels like he's drowning in an ocean of grief as the deep undercurrent of his sufferings threaten to vaporize his life. If you think about it, he's even referring to his suffering. 
as something that God is doing in some regard. Just the language of the text leads us there. The psalmist knows that whatever comes into his life, good or bad, it has to cross the desk of God and get his approval first. Otherwise, there is no hope. And you might look at that and go, wait a minute. You mean God would approve suffering in my life? Well, if he doesn't approve suffering in your life, then he just doesn't know what's going on. And he's just sitting passively back and he missed it. And that's not a God I'd like to serve either. But a God who does approve suffering to come into my life for a purpose, I'll serve that God. I'll surrender to that God. So whatever God allows to come into your life, um, one old Puritan said, is needful. And whatever he withholds from your life is also needful. You need this. Whether it's painful or joyful. You might say, I wonder where the Bible tells us that. Well, read the entire book of Job. Actually, all you got to do is read the first chapter and you'll get it. Read the whole thing, though. I encourage you to. Job would attest to this. He suffered the loss of everything. His kids, his, his business, his wealth, all of it. And he was the wealthiest, most famous man of his time. Lost everything that he held dear in his life on account of the fact that in the beginning of Job, Satan's wandering around, and God goes, hey, what you up to, Satan? Satan's like, oh, I'm kind of bored, looking for something to do. Hey, have you considered my man Job? That's the way it goes. God is the one who initiates the suffering in Job's life. And, and some would say, well, that's because he knows, as, as a test, that Job would still worship him despite the suffering. God even lays the parameters. Here's the things you can do to him, Satan, but thou shalt not take his life. You can, you can do anything you want to him up to that point, but leave him alive. Satan's like, oh, he's going to curse you. God's like, no, he won't. And so most people would read that as a testament to Job's faithfulness and his strength in the midst of the suffering. And I would say, no, the focus is wrong. Because in our humanity, we have no strength for that. Don't we? Can't we all attest to that? None of us, on our own, will be able to worship God and praise God in the midst of intense suffering. The only way that you and I can is when God has saved us and called us to himself and made us his own and filled us with his very own presence so that at that time, it is him working in and through us it actually enables us to stand strong, to persevere until the end. So really, the whole book of Job is not about how Job is so faithful. It's really about how God is faithful. And that is what I see behind what's going on with the psalmist here. Our psalmist, just like Job, is overwhelmed and he's desperate. And yet he knows. God brought this to him, and God is still with him. But he questions that in a little bit. You know what this kind of season is like when you feel that desperate, that overwhelmed? What that kind of grief feels like, feels hopeless, feels scary, feels overwhelming? What do you turn to in those moments? to keep your head above the water. A glass of Coke, light, or a glass of water. What is going to uphold you from drowning in an ocean of grief? 
Now the answer to that question, what will keep my head above water when I'm overwhelmed with grief and desperate to stay alive? The answer to that question is a steadfast love of a heavenly father. That's the answer. The steadfast love of a heavenly father. The psalmist knows this. This is why he says, look at verse 8, that day by day the Lord commands His steadfast love and at night His song is with me like a prayer to the God of my life. You see, the steadfast love of God is what upholds the psalmist when the waves of grief overwhelm him and when he's being taunted by those who do not believe such as he does. Think about God's steadfast love. It is steadfast, faithful, unchanging. It is steadfast because it does not depend upon you. It does not depend upon your behavior. You cannot earn God's love, therefore you cannot unearn God's love either. God's love is dependent not upon you. It is dependent upon His very own character, which is never changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, His love for you is never changing. It is simply steadfast. What the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 3, 18-19, wants us to be rooted, grounded in the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because if we have the strength, the power, the Spirit of God, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the thing about the love of Christ, is that at some point it completely surpasses all the knowledge we have in our head. It's beyond our complete understanding. If we're able to get there, then we will be filled with the fullness of God. That's what Paul says. When the waves of grief make you feel like you're drowning as a desperate man. or To know the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus is to have what I would call the best life jacket a person could ever have when the waves of the ocean of suffering and grief overwhelms our souls. <coughs> Question of application for us on this point, briefly. Have you soaked your parched soul in the presence of God's steadfast love lately? Have you literally sat in a bathtub of God's steadfast love for lengthy periods of time lately. I just want to invite you to do so. Take an hour, take two, take three. Turn everything else off. The chatter that's in your mind, write it down on a piece of paper and push it aside. So you can kind of clear out a little bit. Meditate, contemplate God's great love for you in Christ Jesus. It has a transformative effect on the soul. Now, something else the steadfast love of God does for us is that it enables us to actually be honest about our suffering, our losses, our grief, our helplessness, our fears. The sixth thing we see in the text. See, pretending uh, like you're not drowning doesn't change the fact that you're actually drowning. Okay? Pretending like you're not drowning doesn't change the fact that you are, in fact, actually drowning. Uh, the phrase, fake it until you make it, is an absolute lie. Oh, we all say it, I say it. But it's an absolute lie. Okay? 
Because here, and here's the reason why. Think about this. Fake it till you make it. What it's actually intended to do, it doesn't deliver on its promise. The actual result of that statement is that it gets you isolated. Fakers don't make it. They drown in a sea of misery because they pretend like they don't need any help. So I don't need you. Got this. Right? That's why it's a lie. So while our psalmist holds tightly to the life jacket of God's steadfast love, he also gets really honest with God. He doesn't fake it until he makes it. He says in verses 9 through 10, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? That's a very bold statement. God, you left me. You abandoned me. You, you're not here. I don't feel like you're here. Where are you? You left me in the dark. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, but they say to me all the day long, where is your God? There's no fake it until you make it theology in our psalmist's heart, none whatsoever. He may be conflicted over the suffering he's experiencing in the light of the God he knows and loves, but he's not coming to God under false pretenses because false pretenses pave the road to eternal separation from God. Speaking of eternal separation, our, our psalmist honestly admits that he feels completely forgotten by God, completely alone in his circumstances. His, his enemies are taunting him once again. And he feels like he's about to die. You know what that's like? When the pain and the suffering and the hardship are so heavy that you feel like, this might kill me. it's like to experience something that's so excruciatingly painful that you feel like you're all alone. Alone. And those moments of feeling like the Grim Reaper is breathing down your neck, what do you and I need? I think we need a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Something we can hold on to that will hold us steady in the midst of the storm. Hebrews 6.19 Tattooed on my arm as a reminder. Various seasons of my life. There's only one thing that's going to crush the conflict of pain. There's only one thing that's going to crush the suffering deep within your heart. There's only one thing that's going to get you through to be that anchor, and that's the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. The only thing. And this is why our psalmist concludes with what I call a crushing blow. The final thing he says is a crushing blow to the powers of Satan, sin, and death. He says it in verse 11, says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Once again, the, the foundation of our hope is found in none other than the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. Without that, we have no hope, and we only live for this life and this life alone. Might as well do whatever you want. This is the only kind of true hope that's going to crush the conflict of suffering that's deep within the hallways of your heart. Conclusion. When your heart is conflicted within you, when your heart is wavering back and forth, back and forth between those high theological thoughts of God as well as the very real boots-on-the-ground suffering that you're experiencing, when you begin to wonder if your relationship with God, with God has fallen apart, you begin to 
wonder where God is at in the midst of this. Begin to think that maybe you've sunk into some kind of uncurable spiritual depression. What you need is a massive dose of hope for your conflicted heart. What you need. What I need. When the sudden loss of a child tears your heart in two, or when the, the shattered glass of your marriage cuts deeply into your soul, or when the, when the bewildering betrayal of a close friend threatens to destroy your heart and mind, when the health issue becomes a death sentence, when the trauma of your childhood leaves you curled up in a ball of grief and loneliness and shame and guilt, and, or when your empty home and your empty bed taunt you with lies of unworthiness, when you surrender once again to patterns of sin that replace promises of pleasure with shouts of guilt and shame, when, when, when things like these dehydrate your soul, you're going to need a large dose of hope for your conflicted heart. That's what you're going to need. When you figure out that all the things you've been turning to do not satisfy eternally, you're going to need the real thing. See, when you and I find ourselves longing for God like a thirsty deer because of the depressing memories of what once was, <clears throat> when hoping in the future is difficult because you're feeling overwhelmed and desperate because of what's happening right here in the immediate, when you feel like you're drowning in an ocean of grief, what you're going to need is someone to hold your head above water. And when you get to the point where you stop faking it until you make it, you're going to need a kind of rock-solid hope that will crush the power of Satan's sin and death inside your conflicted heart. That's what you're going to need. It's what I need every day. And I can find no other place for this kind of hope than the foot of a bloody cross, the doorway of an empty tomb, and the light of the promise of heaven. I can't get my heart away from those thoughts. Like our psalmist, you and I can both deliver a crushing blow to Satan's sin and death. And you do it by interrogating your soul. Why are you this way, soul? And then simultaneously preaching a message of hope to your heart. See, with the psalmist, you and I can both proclaim, if you've trusted in Jesus, you and I can both proclaim, why are you cast? You can almost taunt your own heart in those moments. Why are you cast down, soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see, hope for the conflicted heart is found, listen, it's found in sin's defeat at the foot of the bloody cross. That's where sin was defeated. That's true hope. My sin, past, present, and future, has been tossed as high as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west. That's how powerful the bloody cross is. Karen mentioned this passage last week. Though our hearts be like a harlot, meaning though my heart is actually like a whore, The love of God, the blood of Jesus, washed it white as snow. Hope for the conflicted heart is found in sin's defeat at the foot of the bloody cross. 
Hope for the conflicted heart is also found in death's defeat at the doorway of the empty tomb. Sin is defeated at the cross. Death is defeated at the empty tomb. Because our Savior rose again, you and I can trust that when death comes and taunts us, we can say, all death is, is a doorway to the other side. Come and get me. That's the kind of confidence that the victory of the empty tomb gives us. Thirdly, hope for the conflicted heart is found in Satan's defeat in light of the promise of heaven. The reality is Satan, sin, and death are defeated in all three of these places. But I wanted to get really specific. When you think about the hope of heaven, the promise of heaven, what is that? It's a place where Satan is not present any longer and has no power. The moment you and I cross death's doorstep in victory because our Savior rose again, we cross into eternity into the arms of our Savior, not just in escape from all of the sin and Satan's power and lies and destruction of this life, and, but we just pass into the presence of our perfect Savior completely. No more sin, no more tears, no more death, no more sickness. It's an eternity. It's an eternity living in the perfect presence of a living God. In that moment, Satan is completely defeated. That's what we have to look forward to. That's where hope is found. At the bloody cross. At the empty tomb. In light of the hope of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Pray, God, that you would come and inhabit the praises of your people as we close our time together. Uh, thank you for the message of hope that we get to hear in this psalm. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to fill us full of hope as we close our time. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.